What's up guys, this is Tony Angus. Welcome to Chat Time, where I have a conversation with interesting people about the world we live in and the things that matter to us most. Join me each week for a sometimes fun, sometimes controversial, sometimes enlightening, but always enjoyable chat. Today I'm speaking with highly successful entrepreneur, Tom Potter. Following an apprenticeship, Tom worked for a man who was struggling to make a mark in the business world. Learning from this guy's mistakes, at the tender age of just 23, Tom struck out on his own, creating a multinational, multi-million dollar empire. That business, Eagle Boy's Pizza. Tom tells his story in a no-nonsense, no-holds-barred way that sets him apart from other high flyers. Please note, there's quite a bit of profanity in this chat. Enjoy, Tom Potter. Okay, I'm here with uh, the one and only Tom Potter. Mate, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for dedicating your time for, for me today. And uh, so tell me, what's what's going on up in sunny Queensland? Oh, we're just starting up a new business up here. Um, after being out of the pizza business for nearly 13 years, we're relaunching back into the industry because the um, industry's fallen into a bit of a black hole where... It's pretty much only one competitor, and um, it's funny now that we're in our fifties. You actually can talk about the cycles that you see in certain industries. Where one minute you look at an industry and you think, "Oh, it's completely overwhelmed with competition," and then five years later, it's almost back to one. Uh, and you see it in, in in a lot of industries, and in, in the pizza industry, it's happened again. So we're back back in the game, and we're doing it nice. different, different technologies and and simplicity. Well, after 13 years, I, I imagine most of it has changed. The way you would go about things from uh, from your Eagle Boys day to now would be completely different. Uh, technologically, it's completely different. Um, yeah. uh, so the customers are actually ones doing all the work now, placing the orders on their apps and their computers. And yeah. the drivers are outsourced through Uber Eats and Menulog. So two-thirds of our business, which used to be the most difficult to run, which was taking orders and delivering them, is out. It's gone now. Yeah. But more importantly, what's interesting about the business now is that we've discovered that the industry or the people in, in the customers in the industry are extremely um, frustrated and aggravated with um, a lack of um, simplicity. So they go into the major competitor, which is Domino's, and yeah. they get bombarded with everything from 45 different choices multiple bases, a hundred different codes, rules, systems. So we've actually launched the business a little bit like in an outburger out of the US where we only sell seven pizzas on one price and one base. So people are embracing it. Um, are they? Dramatically. They just love the simplicity. Right. So, is, so it's actually been launched on the market? Yeah, we've just opened our third store. Um, we've opened in Toowoomba. We've opened in... Um, Rockhampton, Moray Field, and we've got more to open up here in Queensland, and then we'll be commencing down in New South Wales. And the beauty of the pizza industry now is we don't have to be geographically clustered. So in the past, if you were going to do one store in, in say, Tasmania, you had to do six because people need to know that brand. Yeah. Because we can put a store, let's say we went and put one in St Kilda tomorrow, we go to Google AdWords and we pay for massive amount of exposure in the electronic space within say a two to three kilometer radius. Yeah. So the playing fields become a lot more level because the big um, 
massive corporations like Domino's who owned, say, mass media like TV is irrelevant now because there's 150 stations to watch and most people don't even watch live TV. Yeah, that's exactly so right. It's really interesting watching the change in the dynamics and being able to um, maximise that opportunity. Yeah, the internet and uh, cable TV and all that has changed the game dramatically. Yeah, well, I think that um, when you're looking at the amount of... Uh, I was talking to my brother this morning who started up a Facebook page last week, and it's all about Aubrey Wodonga and its borders and how the entire economic community has been decimated. And he set up this, this blog that's on Facebook about you know, bringing down the, basically bringing down the Berlin Wall between Aubrey and Wodonga so they can everyone get back on the business. And he said, they've got 10,000 followers in a week. You know, that's, the whole concept of being able to reach out to people has changed dramatically. Like yeah. it or not? Oh, look, I like it in one way, but uh, I have my own little beef with uh, Facebook at the moment. I'm not sure if you're aware, but uh, I got um, hacked. My, my, my account got hacked and uh, whoever hacked it put on a... Uh, an image of ISIS, you know, one of those typical terrorist images where they're standing up there with their flags and their bandanas and their guns and stuff like that. And, and whoever hacked it, and I was, uh, I was not looking at my account for days because we just bought a home and um, we were house shopping and doing all that stuff. And so anyway, uh, next thing I know, I get a message from Facebook saying I'm barred. And I go, okay, it says barred pending a review. And so they send off this uh, and I go, okay, well, let's get this review done. And they say the review is going to take a little longer than usual because of COVID. And I'm going, well, I'm not sure why that would be the case. The internet hasn't changed. And uh, all of the people doing the review, I imagine, would be work working remotely online anyway. So let's just, let's get those wheels in motion. And so they conducted the review and they decided to uphold the barring. So, yeah, so here's this uh, politically centrist ex-policeman, 56-year-old from Melbourne who has never set foot in a Muslim country in his life and uh, is an atheist. I don't, I don't follow any religion, let alone a, a, an extreme one. And, they, and they've decided that there's enough evidence in there to permanently bar my Facebook account, which I find extraordinary. So uh, I've sort of been uh, hung, drawn and courted without being given an opportunity to plead my case. But anyway, that's my big whinge about uh, Facebook. But I... I find that um, they're very anonymous. A lot of these, uh, very anonymous. If you've got a beef with a, an Instagram, well, that's Facebook. You've got a beef with Twitter. You've got a beef with Facebook. They're over there. Very hard to get hold of. So we're, we're, we're dealing with a lot of our accounts. Uh, for example, um, Uber Eats, uh, MenuLog and so forth. We can't talk to anybody. No. You know, our, our entire business is reliant on some of these suppliers. And we have to talk to someone online or via an app. Um, and that's, that's one of the downsides of what we're facing here. Um, that's, that's just, you know, they say you have to uh, play the cards you dealt. That's modern society. Yeah, it really is. But I find it uh, there's a real lack of uh, sort of accountability. So if, if you get, you know, your reputation in a way is in their hands because if they screw up an order or they, you know, they're not screwing up an order, but if they, do, if they spill something on the way or they contaminate it somehow or they just don't show up or they go to the wrong house, then people are going to start going, I'm not ordering that anymore. It's just not worth it, you know. So, and I, I find that really uncomfortable. Um, personally, I like to be in charge of my own destiny and I don't like to put too much in the hands of people that I can't eyeball and say, right, let's, 
create an agreement. The good news is, is that you're not, your life isn't reliant on Facebook. No, it hasn't been at all. I was say, that's the good news. Yeah. And, and I'm in the same boat. I do everything I can. My missus said to me recently, why don't you put anything on Facebook? And I said, because I, I don't want people really knowing what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm just a private person and I prefer to be a private person. And the only reason I used to post stuff on Facebook was so my mother, who looks at Facebook day and night, could see what her grandson was up to. And that was that. Yeah, it's fair. But we use it now commercially for our businesses and it seems to be doing the job. Yeah, well, that's good. Nice. So, all right. So let, let's go all the way back because you uh, founded Eagle Boys and that was uh, many, many years ago. And tell me why. What, what got you into the business in the first place? Um, well, I went off and did a bakery apprenticeship um, and then finished that bakery apprenticeship and did some backpacking around the country, um, which was pretty standard in those days. Uh, we're talking about the mid to late 80s. Yeah. Um, and then I um, acquired a job working in the industry of baking and flour milling. And it was in that job, when I was actually in Adelaide, I met a guy who was starting up home-delivered pizza in Adelaide. And he sort of asked me to come in and help consult because of the advising firm I was working for, which was a flour mill, basically. Yeah. So I think, like I saw what he was doing and he listened to about half of what we advised him to do and it was reasonably successful. But I remember thinking it could have been substantially more successful if they had done it operationally better. And try to cut a long story short, uh, a year and a half later, I went off and started Eagle Boys by sort of looking at what somebody else had done and manipulating or making the best of all the mistakes they made and thinking, I actually think we can do this. And, I mean, it's not dissimilar now with Pizza Guardians because we're seeing that everybody is hating the complication of the transaction. So we're doing the opposite. So back then, we sort of set up Eagle Boys and it was, it was, it was, they used the word now when um, um, somebody comes along and shakes up the industry. What's the word for it? They call them a disruptor. Disruptor. Well, we were a disruptor, you know, because um, Bendigo had clogs and, and, and um, Aubrey Wodonga had Sam's and no one was really doing anything in the pizza industry. And we built mini factories. We built them to, to huge amounts of volume, to do massive amounts of marketing and to deliver to people's doorsteps, which really wasn't happening. Delivery really was a new thing. Um, so we were a disruptor. And when you're a disruptor, you've got, you usually go in two directions. You'll either go very well, very fast, or you'll fail pretty quickly. In our situation, it was reasonably successful. So we went off and opened a second and then a third, which was Dubbo and Wagga, and they were all successful. Um, but then came the enormous battles of trying to manage stores that were five and 600 kilometres apart with young staff working weekends and nights. So then we evolved out of the business and decided to literally flip out of the pizza business and go into the people business, which was franchising. Instead of trying to make 20% out of every store, um, you were then in a situation where you said, well, we'll be taking five or 6% in royalties, but those stores will be better run by hands-on operators. And when I remember when we sold Wagga, Within maybe six months, that store was trading 40% better in sales just by having a guy in there hands-on, always um, servicing the customers as they should. So it was a disruptor. Yeah, I like it. And so um, 
you would have been one of the early franchises too, wouldn't you? Because even uh, I don't recall too many. I mean, there was, I guess, McDonald's and KFC and the big sort of players, but I don't recall too many other smaller franchised arrangements in those days. Franchising was new. Yeah. Uh, I flew to the US and met with some consultants, had a good look at what they were doing over there, got a bit more of a picture on what franchising had to be, and that had to be that the franchisees were extremely successful, not just they're making themselves pay a wage. Yeah. So we were definitely new in the industry. When they put together the first Hall of Fame, the inaugural Hall of Fame of franchising, which was back in 2005 or six, I was one of the 20, and that 20 included guys like Bob Jane, who yeah. was, you know, new in the industry. Um, and, of course, you had Peter Ritchie, who started... Sorry, he didn't start. He was the CEO of McDonald's, and Jack Cowan, um, and so forth. But most of us that were inducted then were pioneers back in the 80s. Um, to take it through to where it was. So, yeah, it was new, but it wasn't a new concept to the financial world. It was more of a new concept to Australia. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess that's how I felt about it, that I, it, I hadn't really seen it in Australia too much except for the massive players like the McDonald's who were, who were worldwide. So how far did you end up taking Eagle Boys? You took it out of the country as well, didn't you? It was in New Zealand and... Yeah, we, had, um, we opened over 300 stores across Australia, New Zealand and Fiji. Um, New Zealand was really interesting because the market hadn't been created. So to give you a, um, a back-of-the-envelope analysis, in New Zealand, they were eating pizza about once a month as a family. In Australia, they were eating it once a week. Yeah. So we were, we were operating at 25% of consumption in New Zealand to Australia, at a, if you could rate that at 100. So what we did in New Zealand was we... We, we figured out that the main reason they weren't eating the product was it was unaffordable. It had been price positioned by really the one competitor, which was Pizza Hut, at around about $30 or $40 for pizza. And this was a company that was asleep at the wheel and they just kept putting the price up 2 and 3% every year. Yeah. And people could afford it once or twice a year. So we went in and packaged up pizza at around about, I think, $24 for a meal, maybe two pizzas and a side item. So we created a market. We basically had this catchphrase we used to use called stealing share of stomach. So instead of talking about market share, there was a certain amount of the stomach that was um, consumed every week as far as fish and chips in New Zealand, uh, Georgie Pie, which was a big player, McDonald's, uh, KFC, and then there wasn't much pizza. So our theory was we just want to get the average family eating once a week. So after five or six years in New Zealand, I think we had 65 million in sales out of about 60 shops. But what was most interesting was we were market leader and we were the third largest known brand in New Zealand behind the All Blacks and Steinlager. Wow. Um, so we, we had a very, very good run in New Zealand um, by creating a new market as opposed to going in there and stealing market share from someone else. You were still uh, quite disruptive, though, weren't you? The way you went about it, it was... Um to go in there and just undercut one of the major players is uh, perhaps not a typically what they would call a disruptor quality, but gee, it's a gutsy move. Well, it, it, you can sort of look at it as undercutting, but we didn't because Pizza Hut were restaurants in those days. Yeah, that's right. So they were still sitting around feeding people in restaurants. They weren't even delivering. No. So, you know, as far as a disruptor goes, in we were... 
we were definitely disruptive, but we were more of a first to market because no one was setting up 100 square meter shops, building high volume pizzas and delivering them. And we had a store in, um, in Lower Hutt in Wellington. It used to do 50,000 bucks a week. Um, and it was mainly delivery, of course. Yeah. So I actually think, um, you know, Pizza Hut, which eventually did, did, did um, sit up and take notice of us, they're a classic example of a company that hasn't evolved. Like you have a look at some of the great names around the world that have collapsed in the last 10 or 15 years. Some of them, I don't know how they could have survived. I mean, Blockbuster is a classic example. Yeah. I don't know. They could probably never have evolved, but you even look at Telstra and how much they've evolved as what sort of company they are now. You look at McDonald's, they are the largest seller of coffee in Australia. You know, yeah. that, that company has evolved. Um, and then you have a look at KFC. I mean, probably the reason they continue to be such a hit hit is lack of competition. You yeah, know, that's right. That, there's no player up against them. But then you look at Pizza Hut and you go, what are they famous for? And the answer is nothing. No. The product's not good. The price isn't right. You can't dine there anymore. You know, they're just, a, they're, just a, you know, they're, they're a multi-billion dollar company that will be gone in 10 or 15 years. It was just announced yesterday that their largest franchisee in America is closing, 300 stores. And that'll be the, you know, I mean, the big corporations have all these guys who sit there and cover each other's asses and protect each other's asses and won't make tough decisions. And the great management are the ones that make the most unpopular most important decisions that will make a difference to the company in 10 years' time. 10 years ago, Pizza Hut should have turned around and said, we need to entirely evolve to what we do. We probably need to build drive-throughs. And they've done nothing. So they just sit there and I know um, the first Pizza Hut that turned up in Bendigo, and it was a, had a massive car park. They could have easily put a drive-through alongside that thing. But you're right. What they did, their marketing model seemed to be, let's create another restaurant where you'll come in and you'll get pizza-based dinners and we'll serve little side items or other things. I guess there were like, um, what was it? It was some garlic bread and there were little lasagna packets or something you could get, but it was all based in the restaurant. Well, of course, as the world starts staying home more, people don't want to go out to restaurants and then you've only got to take a, a, you know, a hit in the guts like COVID and nobody's going out. The RSL and leagues clubs will sell meals half the price of everybody else so they can get people in to gamble. So yeah. if you're running a traditional restaurant, you have a very, very difficult battle by competing with them. Um, and the second part of it is the enormous cost of labour to run restaurants, which when a restaurant was operating back in the 70s and 80s, a bottom line was always 20, 22, maybe 25%. Now they're lucky to make 10%. So the return on their asset is dwindling badly. And that's yeah. why Sizzler's gone. You know, Sizzler as a concept was great, but you look at the rent, you look at the labour, uh, and you look at them getting squeezed by the RSL clubs and the leagues clubs, and they can't compete. Yeah. Well, Sizzler died in Victoria many years ago, but I thought that was for health reasons or something that too many people sneezing in the salad. No, that was just a couple of bad bits of PR. At the end of the day... Sizzler's bottom line was less than 2 and 3%. Um, so they just couldn't afford to continue to, to be a business. Yeah, no, you can't operate on those tiny margins. The other thing, um, it strikes me with uh, Blockbuster that 
So there they are. They're, they're a business sitting in an industry and they're the major player in, a, in an industry. The distribution of movies from the cinema uh, players to the public, right? They sit right in that middle. If they couldn't see with the advent of the internet and, uh, you know, all of these, these changes that had... The internet had come about suddenly, but there were changes that were coming about more slowly. If, that, if they couldn't see a way of utilising the internet in the way that Netflix did, then they, they had rocks in their head. And I think it's like you were saying, they're really an organisation that was sitting on their hands. Well, what you'll find with a lot of big corporations and big corporates in Australia is um, these are people who are usually accountants or lawyers. They're yeah. not entrepreneurs. They are there to manage risk. They certainly will not stand up and say, we need to make major changes for the future of this business because they could be wrong. And yeah. if they are wrong, it'll cost them their career. So they would rather see a corpse bleed to death slowly and then blame somebody else than step up and say, we need to make major changes and take all the risk. It's endemic in regards to the kind of people that they put on these boards. I mean, you see what's happening with AMP right now and you know, they bring in a whole bunch of bankers and lawyers and they look back and say, nothing's changed in this company for 25 years. They've lost 90% of their value and they keep putting on the same crusty old tree huggers in there in a business that's ultimately it's a banking business. So, you know, I mean, I was out of Eagle Boys for 12 years and I think I got offered three board roles. Oh, wow. Three, three board roles. And when I interviewed, um, they all came back and said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, you know, do you think why? It's because I asked them a lot of questions they were uncomfortable with. <laughs> no doubt. You know, I'm talking about governance. Um, what are you doing with the future? What's our risk management profile? Where's your business plan? Um, you know, what's the policy with, with shareholders? Fuck, they're sitting there going, oh, shit, we don't know that. You know, I scare the shit out of a lot of these people because I'm asking the right questions, which ultimately is there for, it's good for everybody in the business, employees uh, and so forth. Um, you know, I, I was discussing 7-Eleven with somebody recently. Now, people don't realise this, but 7-Eleven is the second largest privately owned company in Australia. It makes in excess of $100 million a year. Do you think one person on their board of directors in the last 10 years should have actually tapped the CEO on the shoulder and said, do we get an external audit done of our industrial relations program. In other words, are all our staff being paid properly? No one. Hundred fucking million dollars a year these guys make and the board are all sitting there snoring their heads off at the, at the wheel. And then the, the CEO took, took the, took the um, he, he fell on his sword and they went, oh, oh, oh my God, it's all his fault. Well, the guy who was deputy chairman was the head of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Yeah. I mean, fuck, what was he doing? Well, like you said, I don't really understand it. They just do how it is possible to get into business, make it really successful, and then just coast. Then just go, okay, all of the things that we made work, all of the due diligences, due diligences we put in, all of the risk management profiles and all of those other things that you mentioned, and we, we implemented all of those, and now we're just going to stop and we're going to pretend it's 1990 again, and we're just going to sit back and just do what we always did. But the market's changed incredibly over the last 20 years. This is not the same world as it was in the 90s. If you're doing anything like you were in the 90s, 
you are destined for failure. And if you if if you don't bring in the right mix of directors, and I actually treat um, the the dialogue in regards to directors for companies similar to picking a football team, and depending on the league you're in, the conditions you're playing in, and the competition you're up against, that's how you pick your board. And yeah, right. if it's a dynamic company that needs entrepreneurial drive, you don't want a whole board load of directors. Uh, sorry, a whole board load of entrepreneurs. You want one or two in there, and then you want one or two very skilled people that might be looking. I mean, the Eagle Boys were spending, Jesus, we were spending 10, 15 million bucks a year on marketing. We needed to have a very skilled director that understood marketing. Yeah, um, yeah. Because as CEO, you can't, you can't get enough information. There's so many layers of marketing from the agencies to the researchers to the people briefing the researchers to the competitive analysis and the one thing goes wrong, they'll all blame each other. Yeah. So if you've got a marketing director that's saying, oh, I'm keeping a pretty close eye on this so no one's going to bullshit to you, you've got half a chance. So you have to have a very um, even balance of the right culture and skills on a board, no different to a basketball or a football team. It's true, isn't it? Because you, uh, you wouldn't want a team of ruckmen in, uh, in a footy because obviously... Uh, well, for obvious reasons, but um, yeah. Well, even nowadays, even nowadays with the AFL, um, you probably know I was on the AFL commission for quite a few years. Yeah. They pick their teams, particularly in the finals, based on their competition. You know, yeah. if they know they're going up against tall forwards, um, they'll think seriously as to whether they want to actually run tall backs against them or whether they want to run short guys that can run off them. All those things come under the, under the ultimate heading, which is strategy. The strategy is everything, you know. Someone made some stupid comment recently about how culture always outstrips strategy and which is the biggest pile of shit I've ever heard because you can have the greatest culture in the world, but if your strategy's fucked, yeah, yeah, you're all heading off in the wrong direction. You know, yeah, so, yeah, it's all, a, you've, if you've got culture, that's fine, but implementation, you know, you've got to get what you've, you get your product to market and that's implementation, which is your strategy. Yeah, I mean, if people, if, if, if the people that work for you understand the strategy clearly, that will build a great culture. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But if they're getting up every day and they are really happy people, but culturally you're going to get damaged because your strategy is all fucked. In other words, everything you're trying is not working. It's demoralizing. Yeah, yeah exactly right. So... Um, so how did uh, the bigger players like the, the Pizza Hut and things like that take to you when you hit the marketplace? Did you notice any change in them, in their strategy? Or did, they, did you see any pivoting by them? Or, or did they look at what you were doing and suddenly go, geez, we need to start doing that? Or did you, were they just like a, a barge sitting in a river just doing nothing? I, used to, I like to use the word, term like a deer in headlights. But... Yeah. Um, no, what it did was it created probably the greatest price war in the history of the industry, which started in about 1995, and it probably went for about six or seven years. Um, it wiped out um, Pizza Haven. Uh, it wiped out half of the Pizza Hut stores. Um, it wiped out Silvio's Pizza altogether. And there was really only two left standing. There was us and Domino's. With Pizza Hut, they're the ones that started the price war. They decided, and there was an American Texan guy based here in Australia, 
who basically said, we're going to come out and sell pizzas for six ninety five seven days a week. He sent half his franchisees broke and created a mass panic and a mass expectation in the marketplace of a certain price for a certain product. We got dragged into that. It hurt us badly. We didn't lose stores, but we certainly had to support a lot of struggling franchisees because their business model was now being toyed with or bastardized by a big corporate. I mean, it would have been lovely to have enough money to go to someone like the ACCC and say, this is um, predatory trading. Basically, they're, they're trading at a loss to put us out of business. Yeah. Um, but it didn't happen. So the best thing that these big corporates could do was come up with pricing without looking specifically at what the result was going to be. So if you're sitting at corporate office and getting paid half a million bucks a year and you're sending 100 franchisees broke to um, keep your job, it's horrible. But that's what actually happened. And, you know, they probably changed marketing managers three times over that 10-year period. Um, those guys got promoted on to other corporations and other businesses and other places around the world by the poor bastards. And I particularly talk about Pizza Hut because they're the ones that really, I mean, I got, you remember Alan and David Fyland. Yeah. They had multiple Pizza Huts and they all went under. Did they? They all went under. And Alan will tell you the whole story about how the corporate just drove them into the ground. They ended up um, shutting the Pizza Huts, reopening them up as independents or La Porchettas. Like they did, those boys did well because they were shrewd and they were tough. But um, Alan said the difference was that Pizza Hut didn't have personal guarantees from them when they bought the franchises. And Pizza Hut had wanted personal guarantees. And if they had had personal guarantees, they would have bankrupted them. But instead, they shut the doors and said, contracts up, see you later, we're sick of losing money. So the general response by the big corporates sometimes isn't completely thought out. And I remember looking at the Pizza Haven model thinking, one plus one equals fish here. This doesn't make sense. <laughs> but they were still opening stores. You know, they were still drinking the Kool-Aid. And my guys in New Zealand are saying, how are we going to deal with these guys there? They're out there selling two pizzas for the price of one. And they're doing this and they're doing that. And I said, just wait and see, because I actually think that this will all come tumbling down. And it did. But sometimes when a competitor comes in and does something ridiculous, the biggest, the greatest decision you can do is not react. Yeah greatest as you can do is sit back and say, we need to hurry up and slow down. We need to think about what we're doing here, not um, start jumping from the flying pan into the fire. Just really think about what we're going to do. Because second time round for me with this Pizza Guardians model, we're very much, we almost have this theory where we say, we know what we're not going to do. Yeah. You know, uh, and we're not going to discount. We're not going to sell $5 pizzas. We're not going to go out and put coupons in people's letterboxes. That's not what we do. You know, there is, a, there is a small amount of things that we do and we do them well and that's all we do. Is it fair to say you, when you're thinking about building these sorts of businesses, you respond to a marketplace, you don't respond to a competitor necessarily because what, what obviously Pizza Haven were doing was just responding to Eagle Boys. They're going, okay, well, Eagle Boys has come in as a disruptor they're doing stuff. We're going to knock Eagle Boys out of the game. And they focus so much of their energy on this negative, this thing that hurt their own business rather than going, what does the marketplace truly want? And how do we bring the best product to market for the best price marketing that sensibly so that we have a sustainable model? 
because you can obviously they went into let's let's see if we can disrupt Eagle Boys. Well, well actually, matter. you're half right because you got to remember we started on the other side of the country, and they started in South Australia. Yeah. Um, and if anything, P- uh, Pizza Haven were actually responding more so to Pizza Hut's national price war. Right. Um, and then when we started sort of clashing with them, I don't think they were taking much notice of us, and I don't think that was very helpful to them at all. But I'll, I'll just bring up something that I, that I, and I actually wrote a whole chapter about this in my book. Have, you have to have a price positioning policy. And I don't yeah. care whether you're selling ladies' underwear or pizzas. You have to know what your brand stands for, how much you sell it for, what it's worth, and how you actually tell your customers why they should buy it. And I noticed, um, I was in Rockhampton on the weekend and I was bored, so I went for a walk one day and I walked past one of those Rivers stores now, Rivers used to sell really nice clothes and shoes in particular. We're talking yeah. back in the early 90s. I would always buy my leather shoes from Rivers and they were made and they were premium from Ballarat. And now they're shit. Like they are just total shit. And I walked in and I thought, there's not one thing in this place I would buy. So they have repositioned that brand. And I noticed also this week that they've announced that they're closing half the Rivers stores because they're being shut out on their rents. The point is this, the mistakes that Rivers made were 12, 15 years ago. They decided to start chasing themselves down a market that really didn't have a good end to it. And I take my hat off to companies like Rod and Gun, who are very strict in what they sell, who they sell it to, and what price they sell it for. So, um, you know, there's a classic example of a brand that I think we all really liked. And I actually asked myself, did I just outgrow Rivers? Maybe I liked it because I was in my 30s. But the reality is no. Yeah. This stuff is total garbage. It's imported. It's falling apart on the shelves. So I think um, a price positioning policy as to what you sell and so forth is critical. I, I, I talk from a retail point of view, but it probably applies to every other business. I'd say so. So before we do anything else, do you want to plug your book? Have you got a copy of it sitting in front of you? Uh, yeah, mate. I... I um, I wrote this book um, a couple of years after I sold Eagle Boys, and um, it takes us through the, the it tell, takes us through the entire twenty year journey. Oh, I'll actually send you down a copy. Um, send me your email address. So, sorry, send me a new house address after we get off this, and I'll send you down a copy. Um, but the, one of the reasons I wrote the book is there was a lot of mistakes made and a lot of um, incidences in the twenty years. So I actually wrote chapters. And on the back of every chapter, I wrote lessons learned. So, you know, there's an entire chapter about this massive litigation we went through, which cost $850,000. And the lawyers got uh, rich. The other guy that sued us went bankrupt and lost his mind. He lost his marriage. He lost everything. You know, it was just a horrible story. But I wrote a whole chapter on it so people can read it and go, I need to take out of that what I can take out of it. Um, And, you know, like I said, there's a whole chapter in there on price positioning. (coughs) And every second chapter isn't necessarily about a success. It's actually, I talk a lot about failure in there and what we did about it and how we managed it. Nice. Sometimes you read a lot of books about guys and they tell you about, or girls, and they tell you how good they are. Well, this one's, I say it's about 49% of mistakes. Yeah, that's good. Well, I think people, um, I feel personally, disheartened if I have to pick up somebody's book and all they're going to do is talk about their successes. It's almost like 
you know, when you look on Instagram and you see there's these perfect people and their perfect teeth living a perfect life and they seem to have money coming out of everywhere and all they do is trip around the world and there's all that and you're like, ah, come on. You know, so reading about people's struggles and strives and how they've had to battle to get where they are and, and, and the lessons they learned along the way, that's much more interesting for me, certainly. Um, yeah, and that's and I wonder, why I like reading autobiographies as well. Yeah. Um, there's a few, few autobiographies out there that I read that I didn't really take to, and one of them was Donald Trump's, and I read it back in 94. But autobiographies of companies like McDonald's, autobiographies of Winston Churchill, autobiographies of Frank Packer, so a lot of them are really interesting reading. Yeah. Did you read uh, uh, Richard Branson's? No. I don't rate him. I think, I think he's a criminal, a uh, tax dodger, and a philanderer. There's nothing about that guy that I, that I actually... I do not see him as someone I would... Um, look up to. I think he's just a joke. Yeah. And what about uh, Elon Musk? Uh, well, I think the jury's out on that guy. I think uh, <laughs> he's, either, he's either a genius or a complete lunatic and I haven't quite worked out which one it is. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can separate the two, mate. He's, uh, he, he's probably a lunatic genius. I'll tell you what, I have driven a Tesla and they're pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be my next car, mate. I, 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 uh, I've sat in a couple and they are a good car. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely uh, impressed. I noticed uh, just on, the, on a sidebar here that uh, a lot of astronauts and uh, space people are really upset by the amount of space junk he's throwing in, into the uh, Earth's orbit. Apparently there's uh, SpaceX stuff just flying around the, the Earth. Doesn't it all just fall out and burn, burn, burn to Earth eventually? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as it falls into the ocean but, or into the outback. But uh, as long as it doesn't fall into central Melbourne or somewhere. Well, most of the stuff burns up when it's coming through the atmosphere. Yeah, I think it does. It's only lightweight materials. Mate, so you moved on to the speaker circuit then, didn't you, after uh, you got ahead of Eagle Boys and you went around and you did a fair bit of sort of uh, keynote speaking and just uh, helping people understand the entrepreneurial business? Yeah, well, I was probably doing a fair bit of speaking before I sold Eagle Boys. Um, and I, I actually used it to get myself out of the bubble of running the business on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. And there's a great saying about businesses. If the business can't run without you, you don't have a business. So um, being well mentored by a guy called John Kozik, who was eventually my chairman, I decided to cut back to working about three days a week in Eagle Boys, spent more time having some time away and doing some speaking the speaking allowed me to do two things. It allowed me to meet other CEOs of other companies and get to know what their industries were like. And you, you do actually learn a lot and you get direct access to them. But I think the second part of, of doing that was also allowing um, the market to know a bit more about the brand. You know, people had 99% of people you would talk to knew the brand. They dealt with the brand. They had a, an affection toward the brand. Eagle Boys was very much a, well-known Australian brand that had a had a um, a reputation of of being very much middle of the road. We weren't a sort of a upmarket, and we weren't down in the gutter either. Yeah. Um, so people would always come up and tell you their great stories about when they worked for Eagle Boys, or um, you know how they were a weekly customer or whatever. So I actually did it to break the monotony of running the business, and then it continued on doing it, and I'm still doing it now, but. I mean, haven't done much of it in the last six months. 
No, no, it's bizarre, isn't it? What a what a strange, what a strange world we find ourselves in, mate. And I, I don't know how it's going to affect things on the other side. I, I sort of look with interest at twenty twenty one. Not sure how it's going to unfold because I can't imagine that the world is going to just go back to twenty nineteen. I can't see that that's going to happen. But um, I don't profess to be any sort of forecaster, mate. Uh, so then you did was it crusty? Crusty Devils was the, the name of the uh, bakery. Yeah, we still got it. Um, I actually applied the whole disruptor concept to my thinking. So I took about four or five years off, did nothing. Um, actually, it might have been four or five years. It might have been three or four, but did nothing. And then um, I decided that because Queensland is so poorly catered for quality bakeries, that we should build 24-hour drive through bakeries. And the concept was to... Customers could drive through at two in the morning. The entire drive-through lane would be a glass window. They'd see the bakers in there making the eclairs and cooking the pies and everything else. And um, if you've been through a um, Krispy Kreme drive-through, yeah, um, that sort of concept, but much more open, open plan. So the big picture had um, some real excitement to it. Yeah, but the reality was. I decided to go and open up a couple of bakeries to learn the industry again, operationally, which I did. And it went reasonably well. But to build or find yourself drive-throughs was almost impossible. Oh, really? Because there was a new industry called the coffee industry, which was snapping up every drive-through at very high rents that they could get their hands on. So we just couldn't get past the momentum of the first base. Yeah. So the good news is, is that we've still got Krusty Devil Bakery and it's still a good business. Nice. The bad news is, is that we didn't go and build a whole bunch of drive throughs that I wanted to do. Yeah. Guess it, what? It was kind of a successful failure. Yeah. Well, I know uh, my mother was a, uh, a frequent patron of uh, Krusty Devils. So it was, uh, and she really enjoyed it. She thought it was. Yeah, well, good. that one in Cannon Hill. They closed that whole shopping centre, but we still got the one up at Carina, which is not far from your mum anyway. Oh, yeah, okay. So where did you come up with the names? Why uh, Pizza Guardians? Uh, who, who came up with that and uh, why? Okay, so what we did was we wrote down a list of the um, personality traits. Yeah. And, I mean, I've got the list right here on the wall if you want me to grab it. Um, and once we wrote up the name of the personality traits, personality traits obviously include what you're going to do, what you're going to offer, how you're going to offer it. Yeah. Then we sat back and said, we need to come up with a name that reflects the personality traits. Nice. So I've got a mate who owns the largest brand creation in the world. I went to Harvard with him back in the 90s. He has, I think, about 300 staff in 12 countries around the world. And all they do is name things. So he named Viagra, for example. You know, um, he, yeah, he, he comes up with, you know, they'll come to him and say, we've got a product. This is what it does. And he goes away and does all the research and comes up with names. And I used to, um, his name is Jim DeTore. And I used to spend a lot of time with him and listen to him. And the one thing that stuck in my mind was write down the personalities of your brand and its values and then come up with a name. Yeah. And you can almost do it to a, a, a female name, for example. You know, there are certain female names that represent prostitutes and there are certain female names that represent your mum. You yeah, know, that's right. You don't see too many prostitutes called Betty. No. You know, that kind of thing. So it's a very interesting and applicable way of looking at a brand name. 
Yeah, that, yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, I I can imagine those people that A, don't have time and B, don't have the creativity would really be looking for a bloke like that to go, listen, this is what we stand for. You come up with the name and we'll run with it. I see names out there with businesses and I walk in the door when I was doing some consulting and I'd say, listen, you've got to change your name. Yeah. And they go, what? And I go, look, mate, it doesn't, doesn't tell me anything. I mean, I went in to work for a company called Soul Origin and they sell soups, sandwiches, salads and coffee. And every time I'd mention Soul Origin, people would say, oh, you guys are in electricity. Do you sell electricity? You know? Yeah. No, we sell soup sandwiches. And they, even the guys that owned it couldn't explain to me why they called it Soul Origin. So sometimes they're doomed from the start. Do you remember that company called Death by Chocolate? Yeah. That was <laughs> fucked. You know, you just look at some of them and you just go, what the fuck are you thinking? Yeah. Coming up with a name like that, that yeah. just doesn't, it d- doesn't tell you anything. And if you're starting a brand, you need to be able to tell people immediately what you do. We called it Pizza Guardians because it's got the word pizza in it. Like, yeah. hey, this is what we do. Yeah. But we've already shortened it. We already call it amongst ourselves Guardians. Yeah. You know, but the consumer, you know, you've got to have the word in there. I mean, crusty devil. Think about that. It sells fresh. It sells irreverent. It sells hot. It sells different. It's a bakery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I liked it. The moment I heard of it, I went, yeah, that's good. So um, what's the logo? You got it there, are you? <laughs> oh, I got one of our boxes. Oh, yeah. Oh, you got one of your boxes. That's good. All right. Oh, yeah. Guardians. Oh, so it's a halo over the, the G in Guardians. I like it. That's gold, mate. But the actual logo that we use for our um, app is kind of cool because it's like just a PG. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. But I'll send you the slideshow of our photographs of our store because you'll see it at night and it lights up like a like a christmas tree beautiful mate I, I look forward to that so it sounds like things are good where are you taking pizza guardians now where are we expecting back into new zealand well we probably will the thing with pizza guardians is a different business model we're not franchising it we're almost running it like a cooperative but i own half of every store yep um so we have a certain amount of control and management um, in regards to managing everybody's marketing, procurement, IT. And then they can get on and run the business. And it's an easy business to run. You know? I mean, we only open four or five hours a day and we only sell seven pizzas and we only sell it on one base and we only sell it on one price. Yeah. So it's very uh, low staff intensive as well. So uh, we've got a bit of a runway where we want to just go out there and we want to get back out and we want to disrupt the shit out of the market. Um because 80% of the market is now owned by Domino's. Yeah. And that's too much for one player. Um, but more importantly, the sales graph in Toowoomba is just went like that in the first 10 weeks. Wow. Which tells you that there is a huge gap in the market. Yeah, it really does. And I mean, we have obviously in Melbourne, there's your individual ones. So we've got our local pizza people and all of that. But if you're looking for a... Um, if you're looking for a franchisable or national product, nobody will think of anything other than Domino's. Well, you've got to be, you've got to be, you've got to have competition for those guys. You can't have those guys running around just owning the market like that. Um, but I, what I like about Pizza Guardians, when we get pizza, now we had pizza last night because uh, we're moving house and the place is a bomb and uh, the missus just said, right, I will just get pizza. 
we get the same five pizzas every time. So because the, the boys like what they like, the girl likes what she likes, Gina likes hers, I like mine, so we just get the same ones. So having seven basic pizzas with the one base, it's not like we go in and we order different bases either. We all get the same base and it's just the seven flavors every single well, we get the five flavors every single time so we wouldn't need any more that's right that's right it's the 80 rule yeah it is the 80 20 it's a old Pareto principle so we're expecting to see them in victoria when mate this is uh this is the big question on people from melbourne's lips well i gotta tell you victoria is probably one of the more difficult markets with when it comes to pizza because the independents do a good job down there yeah, they do. Um, so we'll probably be skipping our way around Queensland and New South Wales for a year or two before we worry too much about Victoria. Um, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. The quality of your independent pizzas, and uh, they take a lot of pride in them. You can go anywhere and there's really good quality pizza shops just about everywhere. However, not all of them deliver and uh, not all of them have got uh, a national brand and you know, got got the nouse of a Tom Potter behind him, I suppose is fair to say. Yeah, well, like I said, it's um, it's it, it's not just the pizza market in Victoria in general. Um, you know, everything from Greek to Vietnamese food, even bakeries, I actually think it is the food hub of the country. Yeah. And they do it better than everybody else, much better than everybody else. I mean, even when we sold... When we had Eagle Boys in Victoria, we probably only had eight, ten stores in the whole of Victoria when I sold the company. You know, to penetrate Victoria was, you know, there's a great saying, sometimes you've got to fight the fights you can win. Yeah. Um, and if you can't go into it and think you can actually succeed at it, just stay the hell out of it. Yeah. And what's happened is a lot of, the, uh, a lot of people are just opening just that one or two stores, not trying to become too big. And just going, okay, we'll find ourselves a niche in the market and we'll just do really well with this one or two stores. Yep. So there's a, a lot of, like you said, a lot of those independents. And people are opening up beautiful Mexican stores and things like that, but they're putting two stores in. They'll have one in Southeast and one in the Central and that'll be it. That'll be it, you know, and because they just realise that breaking into a market with more, more than half a dozen stores is just going to be too much hassle for the for the uh, outcomes it's a staff nightmare yeah i mean if you could pay staff reasonably instead of double time and a half on on bloody you know weekends and stupid fucking public holidays and everything else you yeah. might have a chance but right now it's come out of balance you know the landlord the suppliers the staff the unions and then right at the end it's the owner gets some yeah yeah, he gets the owner's it. got to have a bigger return to reinvest in commerce to keep people employed. And right now, while they allow industrial relations to be running, running amok, there'll be a fuckload of people unemployed, not to mention COVID. And unemployment's going to reach over 20% nationally in two years. I'll tell you now. Do you? Do you reckon it will? Oh, yeah. We are in for a financial tsunami of problems that no one's ever anticipated. All, all the government's doing now is printing money. All, yeah. all they're really doing is telling everybody it's going to be fine and putting money in their pockets. You Once you stop putting money in people's pockets and you see them lined up at the unemployment office, watch all hell break loose. Because yeah. the amount of businesses that haven't gone broke yet because of support from government will go broke. One in five businesses will be gone and probably two in five retail businesses will be gone in the next two years. And no one's saying it. 
but it's going to happen. Do you think it opens up an opportunity for the entrepreneurial person who says, okay, we've lost X number of businesses uh, from this industry. There's openings for those people who've always wanted to kickstart something. Probably what's going to happen is the Solomon loser of this world are going to go out and bottom feed. Yeah. So really good businesses that have gone fucked up because of COVID and they've gone into shit. He'll go in and pick them up for five cents on the dollar like he did with Robin's Kitchen and others. Yeah. Um, so the short answer is probably not. Um, people with cash will go in there and, you know, they'll crush the little guys and it's just going to be more of a monopoly uh, and more of a difficult situation. That's in retail. Uh, I don't know so much about other, other sectors of other industries. Yeah, well, I think retail is such a massive industry, but you're right. This, it reminds me of the property um, collapse when uh, in the United States uh, there were bus tours of millionaires driving around buying homes that were once worth a million and now being sold on the market for 50 grand. And they would have neighbourhoods of really nice houses in certain parts of LA and they'd take busloads of these wealthy people through who'd they'd have their brochures down and they would bid on houses. I'll pay 50 grand for that one. Yeah, no worries. That's yours for 50 grand. And they would buy up neighbourhoods. And then, of course, when the uh, economy rebounds, they now have a home worth $800,000 that they paid 54 six months ago. So, um, yeah, so what I was telling you is cash is king. Yeah. <clears throat> if you don't have any, you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough, mate. I'll tell you the, what worries me is it's going to get rid of the middle classes. We will end up more like the United States with those people, the rich getting really filthy rich and then middle class being pushed in either direction like the United States, and I don't that's, like... That's the general story of capitalism. Yes, it is, yeah. That's the way it works. Um, and what happens is there is usually a revolution and a change. You know, the Industrial Revolution was one of the greatest things that ever happened to America. So, you know, times will change. There will be, whether they're revolutions of, um, of violence or revolutions of attitude, I don't know, but mm. they'll change. But... I, you know, the constant concept of this, the, the, the top 1% of the world owns 99% of the wealth, that's never going to change. It's never going to change. That's, that's the way it is. And um, the, the alternative is communism, which is not a good alternative. No, it's not a good alternative. It's, and that's been shown to fail everywhere it's been tried, except for a couple of, uh, well, large examples. But even then, they're not strict communists. I mean, the Chinese... China's not necessarily what you would call a strictly communist nation. China's very much a capitalist society and no one understands how it works. No, well, I certainly don't profess to, but they've they've certainly entered the marketplace in a massive way and they've got the economy uh, of scale of the United States now. I've spent a lot of time in China in the last 20 years and I don't understand how it works. Yeah. Well... I, I, I think that's a topic for another day, mate. I, I don't think uh, you and I need to get into that. And so this is a uh, Tom Potter-led organisation, Pizza Guardians. Is uh, Bill doing well with his things? Is he going to come on board at all? Um, he and I are having some discussions about possibilities down there in southern New South Wales at the moment. Yeah, I mean, everybody has their own stuff. Danny's retired. He had his own business. It's funny, when Dad died a couple of years ago, I gave the eulogy and one of the things that I realised was that everybody in the family going back four generations was self-employed. Yeah. So I actually think that um, 
people that in a lot of cases are self-employed, it actually comes out of the culture of the family. And if you see it and you live around it, you either accept it and think that can be something you could do because 99.9% of people have never self-employed. But it was fascinating because I'm thinking my dad's brother always worked for a company and all of his kids are the same. Yeah, really. My dad worked for his father and his father before that. And then we all went off and did our own businesses. So I think that was a lucky break for us culturally um, to go to go down that road. I think you're right. I think there's a um, people live in what's normal to them. You know, they find what is normal, what feels normal. And if you are around business-minded people from the day you're born, then uh, you know you obviously feel normal around business thinking and normal around taking steps into creating business and running business and doing all that stuff. And, um, you know, there are definitely people that feel less comfortable. I'm certainly, uh, I don't consider myself an entrepreneur, although I do my own, I run my own businesses, but mine's very, I keep mine very tightly. (laughs) Let's not, let's not think too big because I'm not sure that I could do it. But um, that's only, like you said, the culture that I was raised in. So, yeah. I also think there's, certain climates and environments. I mean, I think being in a environmental, uh, in an environment of entrepreneurism, I think half of it's culture and half of it, half of it's genetic. And I did work for a entrepreneur back in the eighties, only for a short period, only about 18 months, but I learned so much from his thinking in that period. It was gave me a kickstart because I was young enough to take the risks. I was 23 when I started Eagle Boys. Yeah, yeah, it's very young, mate. Nothing to lose. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I remember when I was 23, I, I still feel like I was a teenager, just a kid running around. I didn't know anything. Yeah, well, I probably wasn't far behind you. <laughs> well, you took some big steps, mate, and, you know, congratulations. So, all right, so if um, people want to get hold of you for speaking gigs or if they want to find out more, just plug your book once more. It's... Uh, the book's called? It's called The Eagle Boys Pizza Story. I've got a website, tompotterspeaker.com.au. tompotterspeaker.com.au. Actually, that, actually, that's not true. I think it's www.tompotterspeaker.com.au. There it is, yep. Um, yep. And I can be contacted through that. Sweet. Brilliant. Well, mate, I appreciate your time today. It's, uh, you know, you, you've, one of the things that, starting your own business and struggling and striving to make it something you, and the things you've learned is that you've, you've got that street quality to your uh, business skills that I think most people are going to adhere to because I don't think a lot of people want to go and be an MBA and be an accountant and those and run a business that way. There are a lot of people with just ideas that go, well, how do I get this thing to market? And so, uh, you know, you've got to grit your teeth and you've got to go through the process but, um, you know, I'm sure they've listened to what you've said and, and have thought, oh, that, that makes sense to me. Mate, on the speaking circuit nowadays, um, most of the feedback is that they, they're not used to sort of straight-talking people who, who um, you know, call it like it is. They're used to athletes that are polished speakers that, you know, talk about climbing great heights and all those bits and pieces. So, I mean, like in anything, you've got to have a point of difference. And with mine... <clears throat> quite often I'll offend, but generally it's it's the straight talk which people do enjoy, but are yeah. terrified of doing it themselves. 
um, because there'll always somebody. I remember some woman standing up one day and saying to me, you know, did you have a, a, a board that was culturally diverse and, and, and um, did you have women on your board? And I actually had never thought about it. And I turned around and said, well, actually, I did. I had a woman on my board and I had a Muslim. And to be honest with you, I never even thought he was a fucking Muslim and I never thought she was a woman. Because <laughs> they were both employed because they were good at what they did. And his name was Yusuf Hussain and he was a Muslim um, Pakistani um, accountant from Zimbabwe. So, you know, he had everything going against him, but he was a hell of a good director. And the other one was a woman called Di Borwin who, you know, had her first child at 15 and went on to become the first CEO, female CEO of a public company in Queensland. But, you know, my response to her was, these people were employed because of their skills, not because of their colour or their religion or their sex. Yeah, exactly right. There's a whole uh, d- debate and discussion to be had around that stuff. But um, I think we, we concentrate so heavily on race and colour and religion and creed and all that that, we, that we've actually got colour glasses on instead of taking them off and going, you know, I, I would like to be colour blind like I was when I grew up. I don't. I don't give two fucks about it. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, if someone, I mean, I walked into the store in Rockhampton last week and said, you got two staff here that don't know shit from Clayback Customer Service, fuck them off. You know, I didn't give a shit what colour they were or no. what sex they were. They're not doing their job. Yeah, well, this is the point, isn't it? Uh, you know, we can't just live in a world where we say, okay, because this person's a gender such and such, then you've got to keep them on. If they can't do the job, they can't do the job. Not happening. May I have your postal address now and I'll just send you this book? Yeah, no worries at all. Well, we'll wrap it up there, mate. And uh, But I, I did want to say thanks very much and uh, hopefully people get in touch and get you on the speaking circuit again because you've got that much to offer. So good on you, mate. And thanks, everybody, for listening and we'll, we'll catch you again next time. No worries. Appreciate it, mate. Good to catch up. All right. Bye, everyone. <laughs>